0: Scripture reading this morning is found in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. Follow along as I read. 1 Timothy 5 at verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith, and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than sixty years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. This is the Word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Bob. Well, we've been working our way, as you know, if you've been here any few weeks or this summer, working our way through the letter of 1 Timothy. And we've been calling the series Building a Healthy Church, and we've been uh, following the words of a mature mentor pastor, the Apostle Paul to his young protege, Timothy, who was a timid pastor, given the responsibility of overseeing the churches of Ephesus. And in these churches, false teachers had arisen, those teaching things that were not the truth and leading people And in this particular church, some women, to a false asceticism. That's like denying the body things. And so they were creating um, celibate vegetarians, basically, is what they were doing. They created this elite class of Christians, those who lived one way and those who really got it. But Paul said they were actually shipwrecking their faith. Our theme for this verse, or this letter, and Paul's theme was that he would want the church to know how to live together like a kingdom civics, Kingdom of God Civics 101. In the verse that said, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things, that's the letter, to you. So that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. That's his purpose. That's why we're opening this letter, because we are the church too today, like they were in Ephesus in the early 100s AD. And he's covered a variety of topics, and we have so far. Importance of praying in the church being a praying church and praying for all people and people in high places so that we can be a church that can move freely to share the message and evangelize, to be aware of false teachers, we talked about, to focus on godly leadership. And as Pastor Don Smith, last week one of my own mentors, and we got a couple more coming at the end of August, but as Pastor Don talked the theme last week of hope for the church, hope for us, found in nourishing our lives on true doctrine of the living God. That doctrine matters. What we believe matters. What we teach matters. Doctrine drives life. Well, this week I was kind of monitoring and following along an interesting Facebook dialogue on Canby Now. You ever done that? All I know, all of you who are on Facebook have. I know it. You're guilty. I was following it along and it's since been deleted, but I don't mind talking about it because it was public for everyone, right? So it's, it's, it's fair game. I should kind of tell you everything, right? <clears throat> there was a young man who was posting about his desire to get together some other young people to, to do a, a car meet is what he called it. Uh, or you know, I think like a, a car kind of rally is what, it, is what it was. And I was watching the dialogue go back and forth uh, between this younger man and some of the older residents of Canby. It's really interesting. And it was so clear from watching the dialogue between this younger man and then others who were a younger generation that kind of piled in and and some of the older generation in Canby that there were absolutely major divisions that had come along between uh, one generation to the next. And as I watched this language, I was like, there are major divisions and we don't know how to deal with them in the larger culture. Here's some of the dialogue. The young man said, I'm hurt what you're saying, bro. You're like 50 years old, like really old, trying to, talk, <laughs> trying to talk down on a young person, simply just putting an idea out here. And it's not only youth, old people go too, that's to the car rallies. You're more than welcome to the meets, we just don't call the police though. The older adult said, well by your attitude and the way you're talking to people, I can already tell any car meet you put on will be not appreciated by people. It's called respect and you need to learn some before you gather a bunch of kids with their wannabe fast cars that notoriously have very little respect for anyone around them. Well, it went on. The older man said, "Your swagger is not going to win people over to your cause. Your age is not an excuse to be rude and disrespectful." And this went on and on, and both sides just piling on, and just there was no constructive dialogue happening at all. Well, from baby boomers and their differences with their parents during the Vietnam era, down to our day and age where people kind of love to pile on millennials with insults we struggle to extend grace to those of other age groups, don't we? And even struggle with knowing how to interact. And just one just really clear example. This morning, we're going to see what Paul says. And he says that in the church, it's okay to admit there are differences between the generations between the genders. It's okay to admit that because when we do it, we remind ourselves that in the gospel, in the church, in our differences, we're called to relate together primarily to each other as family, as family members who love and honor and care for one another, even as Christ did for us. So that's where we're headed this morning. We're going to look at two topics Family relationships of the church is why the sermon is called Family Business, and then a care for widows in the church. So hopefully you've got your outline. Grab it, have it open there as we have some fill-ins and places for you to write, and your scripture open to First Timothy as well. Let's look at this first topic of family. In the church, we are to relate to each other primarily as loving, respectful family. Loving, respectful Family. Now, it's clear, by just reading Paul's letter, it's pretty clear that there was some conflict going on in this local church or all the local churches Timothy was overseeing, and that a young, timid pastor, Timothy, was going to have to address those in his church of different ages. Remember, he was relatively young, probably 35, and uh, so he's going to have to address those who were older than him, as probably a lot of the congregation was, but also of different Gender as well, as there was something unique going on with some of the men false teachers, but some of the women too in the church. And so Paul wants to give us wisdom as he writes, look back at chapter 5, 1, and 2. This is the family section. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters in all purity. Two things here under this first point how we're to treat each other first, like family. That's the first thing I want us to see, like family. All along in this book, in this letter, we've been making the case that the church is not just to be a loosely connected group of individuals. I mean, that's Paul's thrust of this letter and actually all his New Testament letters. We're not just a loosely, happen to be together, connected group of individuals. Remember, two weeks ago, we talked about the orchestra as one of those images. We got a picture coming up of that. The orchestra that tunes to the same key of the gospel. We got an image of that. There it is. Remember that from a couple weeks ago, where we're more like a harmonious band as they all tune to the key of A. We all tune and play the gospel key together in harmony. Or remember the video from a couple weeks ago, the Amish men that carried that barn together as they were going along. I think we got a picture of that one too. City coming up. There it is. They carried that barn together. They're all lifting and pulling in the same direction, on the same mission, with the same power of the living God coursing through their hearts and minds. Well, today, I would say most people's view of the church probably leans towards a little bit more that that we are a loosely collected group of individuals, that we maybe happen to enter the same room on a Sunday morning to hear an inspirational message tailored just for me and then... Yeah, I might stick around for the message to hang around and catch up on some hunting or talk about how the kids are doing, but then we kind of go our own way back to our real life. Paul doesn't have a vision at all for the church like this. This is not his vision for the church. He's going to encourage us to act like a family, and to encourage someone to act like family means that family knows each other, don't they? Family, if he's going to use that terminology, lives their lives together. Family is intimate. Families see their purpose, uh, all encompassing purpose, like the family mission statement we read that we had on our wall a couple weeks back. I read it. It says, Grateful to God for grace in Christ, we pursue holiness and do our good works through his strength so that our Father in heaven receives the glory. We are family, and we are his by grace alone. Paul's saying, You're, you are to be known here as a mother, as a father, as a sister, as a brother, and involved here, and on the same discipleship-making mission here. We are family, Paul says. I love how Pastor Rich Velotus describes the family. Look what he said, or describes the church, actually. He said, I don't know if you can see that, but I'll read it. Oh, yeah, you can. If Jesus spent eight hours a day, every day, For three years with his disciples, he would have spent over 8,000 hours with them. And after all that time, they still had major gaps. (laughs) One hour a week will never change people, he said. What we need is a life that abides in him with the support of others. That's family. That's family. One hour a week will not make you into a rich follower of Christ, Jesus lived his life with his disciples as family. He spent hours together with them. One hour a week is not gonna bring much about. Family living life together, following Jesus together—that's the way. Or as another pastor put it, I was looking for quotes this week. I, I like to bring them up some time to time. So you, you know why I do that. So you're not just always hearing my voice. And you understand that truth crosses over other people and churches. Well, Jared Wilson said this. He says, friendship, and I think we got a quote coming up there. Friendship begins when one says to another, ah, you too. Meaning like, oh, you like the same food, movies, books? Or, oh, you're from that town? I was from there too. That's friendship. But he says, in the church we say to one another, you and I are not alike at all. <laughs> we have no reason to be together except Christ. That makes us family So even though we have nothing else in common, I'm with you and I'm for you. That's the difference. That's what Paul is calling us to here. But I know for some of you, and myself included, that's really hard. And you actually see that, that's maybe a little scary. I don't know if I was signing up for that when I visited Bethany Church. (laughs) Or maybe you might think, well, if I live that kind of life with these people, they're going to see the real me. Or if I let them into my private life, what will they think of me? Or maybe it's, who do they think they are? Thinking they can kind of barge into my life like family. I got enough family. I don't need any more. (laughs) If this is your thought, you're forgetting the gospel and forgetting that in the gospel, it puts each and every one of us on a level playing ground. We're all sinners, alienated from God, who all need to be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And when you are secure in Jesus, there is nothing you could admit that would make him love you less. And if his love is what matters to you most, not the relationships you have with with others or before others, you move towards these type of family church relationships rather than hide in fear because you know with the one that truly matters, you're absolutely ultimately eternally secure. It frees you up to be family because you have the ultimate father you'll never lose. Well, that's the first one. It's this topic of, of living together as family. What's the second one underneath this First point of family is, how do we treat each other then? How are we to treat each other in this building, in this place, as this local church body? If we're family, some of us are thinking like, I'm not going to treat them like I treat my family. (laughs) Right? Or they better not treat me like my family treats me. I know that. We all come from broken families. We all have kind of relationships that get churned in the wake of strife. But again, in the church, first let's say this, it's okay to admit we have differences in our church. It's just, we just got to say that out loud. We have uh, differences in the church between the generations on some really substantial uh, issues. Over the last 16 months, I have been exposed to that as many pastors and leaders have um, more than ever in the life of the church, actually, that I have had, seeing these differences come out and hearing about them across the generations in issues like discipleship, church music, immigration, race and racism, what's a healthy patri- patriotism, mask wearing, materialism, vaccines, Cutsforth or Freddie's, you know, important stuff like that. <laughs> there are differences in the church. They're, they're there. They're across the aisle. They're in front and behind you. It's okay to admit that. And in some of this stuff, it's okay to have differences on policy and how things would best be brought about. It's just, it's going to be that way. It's okay to admit those. It's in how we handle those differences. That's what matters, how we handle those differences. And Paul's words to Timothy were to be like family. So if Timothy was going to have to dress somebody, address somebody who was older, not dress, address somebody who was older than him. Like an older man, he wasn't to shy away from it, but he was to do it and address the person in a respectful way like he would his father. And with an older woman like his mother. Even Paul in his letter speaks affectionately of of, of ladies. I think it was Eunice one maybe, who was like a, a mother to me, he said. Treat his elders with love and respect and dignity. That's what God's word asks that we afford them. It doesn't mean that the younger generation and the older generations don't have hard conversations. In fact, you have to in church life. We just have to have them with this in mind. I'm to treat this man as a father. I'm to treat this woman like a mother or even a grandmother type with, with a due parental affection. And then other young men and other women like brothers and sisters as as equals with younger men and women. You know, what's interesting, a real quick side note. There's really only two ways that men in the church are to relate to women in the church. Either a wife, and then everyone else you're to relate to is like a sister, which speaks a lot for our young people in here if you're thinking about dating. You think about that? She's either your wife or she's your sister in Christ. Just a side note, just a thought. (laughs) how is this possible? How is this possible? With with so many vast differences between older and younger and even between our genders, men and women, how is this possible? Look at Jesus. Though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but became a servant, even to the point of death, death on a cross. It's the gospel. Do you know what's so incredible about Jesus? Think about his earthly ministry now for a minute. He's God in flesh. He's walking around the earth, and he treats everyone like family as he walks around. He's the king of all things. He's the king of the universe, the cosmos. He could have demanded that everyone treat him as such and turn them all into slaves or boss them around. But here he is in his life honoring those who are older than him or who are in places of authority. Here he is treating his younger disciples who most of the time have those gaps that we talked about in the quote. He's treating them like brothers, as equals, as friends. The creator of the cosmos now. My friends, come along with me. My brothers, my sisters. And he always, always, always treated women with respect. And dignity. And and all purity. Why? Who has ever felt more absolutely, totally secure in his heavenly Father than Jesus? He had that security. So he could be open, honest, transparent, say true things and hard things, all with a love from his Father as he interacted with humanity as family. He didn't have to flex his muscle with the older crowd. He didn't have to dominate his young disciples and, like, abuse them into submission and obedience. Like many in leadership have, he didn't have to do that. He treated his followers like family. My brother, my sister, he even said that about him. Who is my mother and brother and sister? These, these people with me right here. So look around you, these are your brothers, these are your sisters, these are your fathers, these are your, your mothers, treat them as such. Secondly today, <clears throat> Jesus wanted to make sure, <clears throat> excuse me, the most vulnerable in the family were taken care of. Our second point, there's a protocol for caring for the most vulnerable in the church that pleases God. Protocol in the church for caring for the most vulnerable. And there's a way that pleases God and there's a way that doesn't please God. It's a longer section of our passage here. Paul gives a protocol of taking care of widows. Now, as we approach this topic today, I realize how sensitive this is. To talk about widowhood usually means you're going to address some level of pain and some level of loss. We have widows here today who are widowed by the death of their husbands. We have widows here today who are widows through divorce. We have single moms in our church. The category is broad, and we we need to see that today, that it pleases God that the most vulnerable in our church are cared for. You know, he's always had this message for his people. From day one, take a look at a couple verses. Deuteronomy ten eighteen. he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. And he loves the sojourner, giving him food and, and clothing. You know what's common about all those people there? The fatherless, the widow, and the sojourner, they're all landless people. People without a land, people without a place, people without a home or means to take care of that land. Here's Isaiah. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the cause of widows. Do You see the language here. It's language of, of, of mercy, of justice, of care, of protecting uh, the weak and the oppressed and those who don't have, whether it be relationship or material. And James makes clear, we know that verse, don't you, that pure and undefiled religion is the care for orphans and widows. And Jesus teaches and rebukes teachers and describes them as those who devour widows, eat them up, take advantage of them. He raises the son of a widow back to life from the dead, and he he praises the widow who tithes from her lack and her want. In Acts 6, we think they even picked out the first deacons to make sure the widows were cared for because some were falling by the wayside. So where our culture, to its shame, to its detriment, writes off the aged, the aged writes them off and dismisses them as backward and out of touch, somewhat like that Facebook dialogue, you're old, you're 50, you're 50. that's what our culture does, or, or, or says that, you know what, you're only worth your level of productivity. If you're not producing, it's off with you. That's how our world looks at youth and age. The kingdom of God is the upside down kingdom where age is prized and the weak are protected, not eaten alive. It's an upside down kingdom. I hope our widows feel that way in our church. but I know that sometimes you feel overlooked. Sometimes we haven't cared for you well. Sometimes we've dismissed you and haven't prized you as God would have us prize you, and sometimes we haven't taken seriously your pain and loneliness. And for that, we need to ask for forgiveness. And as we approach this topic and look now, what Paul says we need to be aware of God's heart in this for the weak, for the vulnerable, for the orphan, for the widow, specifically in our passage today. So let's look at the protocol. Paul gives some wisdom and some guidance for the church of how we're to take care of our own, how we're to take care of the elderly. He says first, honor true and godly widows. He says, honor true, it's the subpoint there under point two, honor true and godly widows. We honor them in our care as we love and provide for real needs. But Paul's got some qualifications, some qualifying words for us. It's not every widow in the world. That'd be impossible. It's even not every widow in our town, even though the church's love will extend beyond our walls. It's first and foremost, Paul says, true widows in our church. And by this, Paul means, as he says in verse 5, a true widow is one who is truly alone. She's alone. She may not have anyone left to care for her. So that's one piece of being a true widow. But the second one is this. Not only that, she must be someone who is godly. Look at verse 5 and 6. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. It's possible that in the early church, they did such a good job of caring for the widows that there were, like, too many on the church's financial support. It's possible. You know, one of the Roman emperors is quoted as saying, like, Wow, they take such good care of their poor and even our own. Um, it's possible that there were too many on the support, and and some of them were not even actually disciples of Christ. And so Paul writes these guidelines to Timothy and gives them a set of criteria so that the care is not taken advantage of. Our deacon ministries do that often. We try to give where there's true need and not let it be abused. So there were qualifications. Were they godly? this woman? Not perfect, but a follower of Jesus. And, and, and did they have any family left? Why? Because we actually do a disservice to the family and the church if we step in the way of the family. So Paul's second qualification was, let the family step up to the plate first. In verse 4, he says that children and grandchildren should live out the fourth commandment, honor your father and mother. That doesn't just mean when you're child, but with your elderly parents. You honor them as you care for them in their old age, and particularly the the widow, the mother or grandmother, by caring for her. her. The primary responsibility falls to the family, which I know some of you have done so well. Some of you have done so well at this. Actually, many in our congregation right now are caring for their aging parents. And I want you to know that God sees you and he's pleased. Or if it was in the past and this person since passed away, he saw that and he was pleased. Some of you have given financially thousands. Some of you have honored them by providing a place in your home. Many of you sat by deathbeds. Praying and singing hymns as a mother or father passed. And Jesus is pleased with that. And you know what Paul says here? It's actually evidence of your faith if you do that well. He's pleased with that. What do we do? We enter into their suffering, don't we? We're entering into their loss, their loneliness, their their need, just as Jesus entered into ours. That's why he's pleased with it. You're mirroring Jesus in the gospel when you love and sit along the bedside of an ailing mother or grandmother. This is what Christians do. In fact, verse 8 says to not do this is to be worse, Paul says, than an unbeliever. Because even those, a lot of people who are not followers of Christ still do that. They sit by the deathbed of a loved one. And there's a practical side of this too, while Paul says to do it in verse 16, it does relieve the burden on the church when family steps in as they should. The church is limited too in its people, in its roles, in its means, in its finances. And so family steps in to lighten that burden. Well, as we transition to verse 9 through 16, so we want to work our way through the entire passage as we do week in and week out. Some have seen this. Now look at verse 9 there. Let a widow be enrolled if she's not less than 60. Some have seen this as further qualifications to get financial assistance from the church. to be put on a list of financial aid. But I actually think, as even most scholars do, that Paul's transitioning here to a list of those widows that should serve in the church, like many of ours do. Many as deaconesses in the church. He's he's talking about something different here now. Here's what he's talking about. Here's the first of these two points under this 9 through 16 here. He's encouraging true widows to service in their own unique position. He's not talking anymore, I don't think, here about this financial list of who we're going to help. He's now talking about who amongst the widows should serve because they're in a unique position in life. As Paul was putting forward here more qualifications for uh, financial assistance, he'd be limiting the criteria here of those who are 60 and older and had a, a lifetime of good works. So what about the younger widow then who has no one? Could they get financial assistance? That's why I think we're looking at something different here. And while Paul is describing here kind of the, 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 the ideal widow to serve, not that she'd meet every criteria on this list, but this is an ideal description here. Uh, Like the single individual, a widow is in a unique position to give of her time to serve the body. Paul is highlighting this here. And and a history, he says here, of women who have a humble service of of raising children and and hospitable caring for the afflicted. This is kind of akin to what Pastor Don said last week when he challenged our Seniors in the congregation, those who are closing in on the finish line, to not retire from discipleship. You may from your job, you may from some of your primary responsibilities. But he said, he said last week, do you remember, he said, No, when you, when you see the, the, the tape at the end, actually kick it into high gear towards the end. I want our widows and our elderly to understand this means you have so much to offer the church so much invaluable, your years of wisdom, your years of experience, your years of life stories. Maybe it's understanding of Scripture or empathetic heart because you've seen so much suffering. Don't retire from the church don't ever think you're past your year years of being able to serve or, or, or usefulness in the church. Lean in, move in, press in to ministry. Younger families, remember Don said, reach down and pull them along. Maybe it's a simple encouraging word. Maybe it's grabbing a mom in the gathering place and saying, how can I pray for you this week? You look like you're under a lot of weight or burden today. Family, right? family. Family. It's not that scary, actually. It might be as simple as as being an older woman in the congregation and finding a younger woman and saying, you know, what if we got together every couple weeks, maybe even, and just read a chapter of the Bible together in a coffee shop? And then we just ask each other, what does this pastor say about God, and what does it say about humanity? And then we pray together. I mean, it doesn't have to be that daunting and scary. You could do that. Every one of our widows who's a Christ follower Every one of our seniors in this church could do that. Let's just gather and read a chapter of Scripture together and come alongside and pull those younger people up. But this is also a word to our young adults too. So you hear this, ah, it's all about widows saying, old people. This isn't for me. No, 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 no. This, this is for you. Think about our young adults now. This is for you. Those who arrive at, the godly, at a godly age, and an old age, as godly trusted servants, like the widow Paul describes here, they built that over a lifetime. They didn't just decide at 70 to say, you know what, now's the time to be godly and to get my life together. No, no, no. They built a house. They built a history. They built a heart centered around Christ so that when they got to that age, Paul would say, ah, there's... There's a servant. So that means what you do now, 20-year-old, 30-year-old, 40-year-old, what we do now shapes who we'll be in the latter years. And some of you, we look at and go, oh, you can just see the rich life of faith in that woman's past, Norma, who's 98. You can see it in her. You can hear it in her words. Oh, man. 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds. We, what we build now is what we're going to live on in those latter years. I lost my place thinking about Norma. <laughs> I don't know where we're going. Uh, yeah, what you're building on now. That's the point. why Paul encourages the younger widows then. You think, well, Paul's being so chauvinistic. I can't even believe it. We're viewing this verses now through the lens of like uh, Housewives of Beverly Hills, (laughs) things like that. Paul's living in a culture detached from these stereotypical ideas. It's, It's another culture we're looking at here. And real problems in the church. And remember, he spent the first half of the letter going after some of the men in the church, and now he addresses some of the women. He tells them, encourage, he encourages true widows to service in their own unique position. Sorry, encourage your widows, sorry, I read the wrong one. Encourage younger widows to marry and avoid trouble. That's the next one coming up there, Sydney, we got. Encourage younger widows to marry and avoid trouble. So having encouraged the other godly widows now to be on a list of servants, he says to the younger widows, there's certain younger widows who should not be on this same list right now. As I said, it's good to remember Paul's addressing real problems in a real church. So there was a group of women who were getting involved in gossip and, and getting too involved in the lives of others in a bad way. They'd been giving, so serious that Paul says they were giving the devil a foothold and even abandoning their, their faith and, and straying after Satan. That was men and women in the church, Hymenaeus and Alexander, or 2 Timothy, examples of that. But there was some of the women too. And remember, there was... In this church, false teachers telling widows not to remarry, saying, you know what, be, no, be an elite Christian. Don't give in to that bodily desire of sex. Be a celibate widow and, and, and a vegetarian on top of that, right, because you don't want to eat these certain foods. <laughs> Who's signing up for that, right? We said that last week. Not, yeah. Paul says the opposite, He says, if you can, and if you're young, and if you still have those sexual desires, remarry and live the life in your family that God will use to make you into one of those older widows we'll put on the list. Because what sanctifies you more than raising kids or family life or marriage, right? It's one of the primary fields of sanctification. Not just to fulfill your needs. It's where God sanctifies us. Because he says idleness isn't good for anyone, actually. There were lazy men, there were lazy women, and it was idle time that with this group of women was filled with gossip and it was making divisions in the church. These are big callings today. These are big. Live as family. Love the widows in the church. Sacrifice for them. Uh, Younger people, think about your, your spiritual life. Younger women in particular today how do we find the motivation for this? <laughs> how do we actually do this? Living like family members with different generations? We got them out of the house, didn't we? Like, but how do you do it? When you know you've got so many different views and opinions and, and, and different answers, and, and how do we care in real financial ways for the vulnerable, the weak, and the oppressed? How long is that list in our church or just say our town? And what if today you're like, you know what, I don't even feel that. I don't even feel very sympathetic. I kind of wish I cared. I kind of wish I did, but i I got enough problems of my own. I can't take care of someone else's. How do we find the heart for this? That's our third answer today. The church will step in to fill in the gap because Christ has stepped in the gap for us. When there's a gap in care, a gap in love in someone's life, when there's a gap in in Christian growth and a gap in family, the church steps into that gap because Christ stepped into the gap for us. I don't tell stories about my kids very often uh, just to help them try to be just normal kids in the church and not PK. But I wanted to share one today, and I actually, I always ask their permission if I'm going to, and I did. Uh, I asked a, a permission of Margot and Jack to share a story today. It was a sweet moment between my younger daughter and son, Margot and Jack. And, and actually, I ask you, please don't actually ask them about it today or follow up with them today. They, I just want them to be kids running around the gathering place. And I don't share this today because my kids are any better than anybody else. It was just a touching Fitting moment. I pulled in the driveway this week, and Jack had this sad face on. I was coming from work, I think, and had sad face on, just standing in the driveway. You know, one of those faces where like the frown is going to like touch the floor. You've seen your kids or grandkids do that. You know, one of those where. And I pulled up, and I rolled down the window. I was, "Hey, buddy, what's what's going on? Uh, What's 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 wrong?" And he said, "Well, we got balloons today." and I accidentally let mine go. And, you know, he's sick, so that's a big, balloon's a big deal, especially if it's got helium in it. (laughs) And he let it go. I said, oh, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry, buddy. Did did you watch it fly away? He's like, yeah. And I said, I'm really Sorry. And just then, Margot ran up to my car, and I and she ran up to the car. And she said, "I had a balloon too, Daddy. I had one today too." And I said, "Well, where's yours?" And without thinking, without seeking credit, she simply just said, "Matter of fact, well, he lost his, so I let mine go too, so he'd feel better." Now, what she had done, not even really knowing, she had stepped into the gap with his sorrow. She stepped into the gap where he had had loss. She had identified with him in his his sorrow and in his suffering. It was like if she could, she would have taken his place and the best way she knew was just, I'll let my balloon go too. Do you see? It's just a small little picture of what the Lord's Supper shows us. Just a tiny little image There's a a huge gap, not only with with Jesus' disciples after he leaves, being with them for thousands of hours, but there's a huge gap between humanity and the Lord. We are poor. We are destitute. We are without family, unable to provide for ourselves. Guess what? We are all the widow. We are all the orphan. We are all born spiritual widows and spiritual orphans. It's everyone in this room. And Christ comes along, he doesn't just let a balloon go for you, right? He takes on flesh and he dies for you and he steps into the gap where you fall short. And when you see that, that you too were a spiritual widow, a spiritual orphan, when you see that and you see what Christ did to bridge that gap, to save you from your alienating sin become your true husband, become your true father. It will melt your heart to those who live as earthly widows, earthly orphans, because you are too. People without a land of their own. Let's take a minute. We're not passing elements, you probably have them already. Take a minute just between you and the Lord and ask Him and think about your own spiritual widowhood, your own spiritual orphan status, and thank Him, if you do know Him, that you have a true husband and father. As the worship band comes to prepare, take a moment just between you and the Lord.